I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. We are at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas, and I have here with me a real live FISA judge, or rather, to be precise, former a FISA. real live former FISA judge. John Bates is uh, a senior judge on the D.C. District Court in, in Washington, D.C., uh, where he has served uh, since 2001? That is correct. And uh, in that time, he was appointed to be the presiding judge of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which, as is now commonly known, is the super-duper secret court that approves wiretap warrants in national security cases and does some other really interesting stuff. And we're going to talk about it all. So let's jump into it. But I, I'll call it the Fisk instead of that long series of words that Ben just used. Yeah, so let's, let's start with that. Everybody in the world except the people who actually have intimate experience with the FISA court, call it the FISA court. The people who have served on it or practiced before it, call it the Fisk. Explain the nomenclature differential. Fisk is just the acronym, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Fisk. The odd thing is that there is a court of review, and it is called the Fisker, <laughs> F-I-S-C-R. And, and in the entire history of the Fisker, how many cases has it heard? I can't tell you how many cases it has heard. I think there are now five published opinions from that court. Uh, so when I first did my first story about the FISA institution back uh, in the mid-'90s, the Fisker had heard zero cases, and it was sort of famous for having heard zero cases. And one of the judges who had served on it said to me, on the record, this was not a, like a, a confidential conversation, said, yeah, it's the greatest job I ever had. The Chief Justice called me up and said, it's a great job. You uh, get a title, you're an appeals court judge, and you never have to do any work. Uh, <laughs> The FISC is different, right? You guys actually do work. So first of all, tell us about how you came to be on the FISC and the presiding judge of the FISC. And secondly, what the nature of the work is. Uh, before I do, there is another court, shorthand alien removal court, that has never heard a single case. And eventually what they did, uh, they meaning the chief justice and those who work with him, uh, was just say, OK, the Fisk Court of Review judges will just be that court as well, because it didn't make sense to appoint judges to a court that actually did zero. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, more like a trial court, does do a, a lot of work. The work has changed over the years, and of course 9-11 was a big event uh, for uh, the judicial system in terms of uh, national intelligence surveillance, uh, just as it was for the intelligence community. But uh, that court nowadays consists of 11 district judges from around the country. Uh, and the chief justice chooses the judges who go on the court. And he feels quite strongly that that's an important function that he has in putting experienced uh, judges, hopefully who have some experience that's relevant, but that's sometimes hard to find, on that court, which is really the only national court. I suppose you could call the, the Supreme Court a national court, but as long as it's mainly graduates of Harvard and Yale law schools, 
from the Eastern elite, that might not be possible. All right, so when you say that the Chief Justice likes to choose people with relevant experience, the presiding judge of the FISC is always from your court, the US District Court for the District of Columbia. What was your relevant experience? Why, why you? Why do you pick up the phone and say, hey, do you want to spend the next, what is it, seven years? Seven-year term. So, One term, you can't be reappointed. So what, like, what, what was it about your background that, that sort of screamed Fisk presiding judge? Uh, I suppose uh, I had been in the military. I had been in the U.S. Attorney's Office for many years uh, and done a lot of Fourth Amendment work. And in that capacity, I had actually done a fair amount of national security work, uh, working uh, on uh, some cases, going all the way back uh, to CBS's defense uh, of uh, uh, the case involving General Westmoreland and the Vietnam War. Uh, I represented the CIA in that uh, context. So actually, I'm sort of the exception. I did have some relevant experience. But many of the judges don't have much relevant experience, except being a judge. Uh, which does bring you into contact with uh, uh, some of the issues that you face uh, on the uh, FISC. Not all, by any means. You don't get much of a grounding in the statute, which is the most important part of the work, but you do get some grounding in Fourth Amendment work, and you get the uh, experience of being a judge dealing with some complex and sometimes difficult issues. All right, so we're going to get to why you keep reading about the FISC and the FISA as an institution in the news and in the context of the sort of Russia scandals or Russia uh, investigation uh, in a little while. But in order to set that up, I, I want to talk about the various baskets of activity that FISA judges are actually asked to think about. Um, FISA is a, a really complicated statute, and it actually authorizes very different categories of, of, of surveillance and, and asks for judicial review of a very disparate type of thing uh, or types of things. And so I want to start by saying, like, what is this statute and what does it ask judges to do? The statute came about in 1978, 79. Uh, and it was really uh, the result of uh, principally two events. Uh, one was the Supreme Court's decision in the Keith case. That's the name of a judge. Uh, the case title formally is United States versus United States District Court for the Eastern District of Michigan. Uh, and uh, in that case, uh, uh, the court dealt with domestic foreign intelligence surveillance. Uh, and uh, uh, opined on whether warrantless uh, surveillance could occur in certain settings, but didn't get to and only sort of uh, made some observations with respect to foreign intelligence surveillance generally. To some extent, what they did was uh, send a message to Congress saying, this is an area that you ought to do something about. They had done that the prior decade, I guess, uh, in the Katz case on the Fourth Amendment, uh, really uh, encouraging Congress to take up what turned out to be Title III, uh, which is the domestic 
wireless uh, surveillance. I mean, the surveillance for wiretaps for drug cases, et cetera. Uh, and Congress took it up and passed Title III. Uh, and th that case by the Supreme Court uh, pushed Congress a little bit to look at this issue uh, for foreign intelligence uh, surveillance that would happen domestically, and that was the focus primarily, initially. Ultimately, the statute has gone much further than that. The other impetus uh, was uh, what uh, I would still call uh, the model for congressional uh, investigations, and that was the Church Committee. And the Church Committee looked at uh, some activities of our intelligence community, uh, some abuses by our intelligence community, uh, and uh, investigated it thoroughly, uh, wrote uh, a series of reports, really, chastising uh, uh, some of the activities of the FBI and uh, the intelligence agencies. And that, too, led to passage of the statute. The Justice Department and the administration resisted for a while, but after a couple of years, uh, what came about was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, focused initially on electronic surveillance for foreign intelligence purposes taking place domestically. Okay, so let me stop you there, because this is the core of the, the main part of the statute, and the, certainly the one that's at issue in, when people talk about you know, the Carter Page FISA or the Russia investigation. They're talking about this Title I of, of FISA, uh, 1978. If you, the government, want to conduct surveillance of me for being a criminal, you don't use this statute. What do you use this statute for? Nowadays, uh, what most people think of is terrorism. Uh, and they think of uh, counterterrorism uh, efforts by the United States. So that's in the foreign intelligence arena. It may or may not be connected with criminal investigation, uh, but it's looking at uh, foreign intelligence. Now, when it first came about, the focus was much more on espionage. Uh, because back in 1978, there really wasn't a, a terrorism focus. Some domestic, but not the kind of international terrorism that we think about these days. Uh, so the focus then was espionage. That's still part of what the statute deals with. Uh, it deals with uh, uh, counterintelligence. It deals with counterterrorism. Uh, it deals with terrorism in all its forms, not just the terrorism that we think of uh, on 9-11 or bombings in Bali uh, or events in uh, London or Paris, but also economic espionage. That's a very important uh, uh, subject. Uh, so the, the statute covers a lot of different things. For you, Ben, probably most of those would be relevant, and so any judge would sign off on the uh, application. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm that dangerous. Uh, <laughs> Why do you need a separate court for this? I think for two re principal reasons. Uh, one is you do need some expertise. The judges don't start with that, that expertise, but as time moves on through a seven-year term, it is developed. Secondly, it's good to have uh, the consistency that you get with a single court, even though there are multiple judges on the court. If this was being decided uh, all across the country, every time an application uh, was made by the intelligence community through the FBI, these really come from the FBI, it might be in a different venue. Uh, and you'd get a judge who had no idea 
even what the name of the statute was, much less how it operated. So I think practically speaking, it makes sense to put it all in one place. Now, the, the federal system doesn't operate that way generally. Uh, we're much more of a what's called a trans-substantive system uh, where each judge handles all different areas. Uh, our rules system that I'm very involved in uh, is uh, supposedly uh, for all cases, not for specialized groups of cases, but this is an exception. All right, and there's another highly exceptional thing about this court, which is that while it grants requests for warrants on the basis of probable cause, as do all courts of general jurisdiction, it also, it operates on a basis of a different probable cause standard than the normal uh, criminal warrant. Talk about the standard that the government has to meet when it comes in to the FISC. There are multiple standards depending upon the kind of case it is, uh, what section of FISA uh, the matter happens to be under. Principally, what Ben referred to as Title I, that's where most of the cases are. And that's uh, the normal electronic surveillance uh, that the statute and thus the court deals with. The probable cause determination there uh, is basically just an associational determination uh, that the uh, target uh, is an agent of a foreign power or a foreign power. So it could be, as a foreign power, not just a nation state, uh, but also an international terrorist organization. Started out post 9-11, really focused on Al-Qaeda. But the target has to be just identified as connected with an agent of that foreign power. Uh, and that's basically the probable cause determination uh, that the court makes. There are some other things involved in it. Sometimes you have to find uh, that there are uh, sufficient safeguards on minimizing dissemination of information, uh, a lot of other possibilities, but the core probable cause determination for the Title I cases, which are still by far the majority of the applications that are made to the court, is that finding of probable cause uh, that the target is a, a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. All right, so in the years after 9-11, Congress gave the FISC this other job, um, which you know, grew out of uh, you know, what's sometimes called the warrantless wiretapping program or the, you know, the Bush administration sort of post 9-11 NSA uh, activities. Uh, well, Congress didn't give the court that job. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, no excuse me. That didn't go uh, to Congress. Right, so I, I said it grew out of that, that eventually, Congress comes in and, and kind of regularizes this whole system, eliminates some components of it, authorizes some components of it, and the result is what's often called 702. It's just a whole different area of FISA. Broadly speaking, at a high level of altitude, what is the court's role in, in, in that kind of programmatic surveillance, which is wholly unlike the Title I activity? That surveillance is overseas and not dealing with U.S. persons. And just think of U.S. persons as basically citizens or people who are here legally. That is a program that only deals, the 702 aspect of uh, those statutory changes, only deals with overseas surveillance of non-U.S. persons. And the probable cause finding there 
uh, is even less. It's uh, uh, just some generalized showing that the individual is overseas. There's not much more to it than that uh, that is required. But again, remember, it's not a U.S. person. It's not a citizen of the U.S., and it's not surveillance being conducted here. Now, that, uh, and the here is uh, a little bit difficult in modern times because, you know, who knows where the server that people's information might be located, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, it's for surveillance overseas relating to non-U.S. persons. All right, so FISA has always had its detractors and people who had civil liberties anxieties about it. Uh, I, until relatively recently, I have thought of the sort of suspicions of FISA as largely coming from the sort of civil libertarian left and to a lesser extent from the sort of certain corners of the libertarian right. But mostly it's a kind of a, of a left civil liberties anxiety. And the argument has always gone something like this. The court is really a rubber stamp. It, uh, in fact, it always involves the words rubber stamp. I don't know why it's like, you know, prosecutors can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. It's never a grilled cheese sandwich. It's always a ham sandwich. <laughs> the FISA court, it's always a rubber stamp. And so you guys are a rubber stamp, and the government gets whatever it wants because it comes into a secret proceeding and it never has to show the warrant application to a defense attorney as it would ultimately have to do in, in, a, in a criminal context in a different, in that other system. Uh, and by the way, the government almost never gets rejected, although more recently it's actually been losing some cases. And so the, the system is a bit of a fiction. It's an elaborate paper trail designed to validate power. Is that, a, do you think, a fair characterization of the critique? There were about nine things in that question <laughs> <laughs> that you mentioned. Uh, let me start with something you didn't mention, and that is the original concern about the statute uh, back in the late uh, 70s really was coming more from the Department of Justice uh, and conservative uh, forces who thought this was a mistake because it would engage judges in an area that they didn't know what they were doing. They just had no expertise, they had no business in this arena. And it might even draw them into having to be involved in policy issues, uh, sensitive policy issues. As it's turned out, I don't think there's been any real risk of judicial involvement in policy issues. Perhaps the time that that was at greatest risk uh, was uh, in the aftermath of the disclosure of the president's surveillance program, President Bush's surveillance program, post 9-11. Uh, and maybe nowadays with the Carter Page political battle going on. And I think that the judges on the expertise side uh, have really developed uh, the necessary expertise pretty well. And there's a set of seven lawyers who are permanent lawyers uh, for the court who are very, very experienced and assist the judges. So back to your rubber stamp question uh, that also uh, raises uh, questions uh, about uh, the workload of the court that I want to address. But first on the rubber stamp. That's been an accusation. I don't think there's been much truth to it ever. Recently, uh, starting about 2015, the uh, court published statistics 
showing uh, the number of applications, the number uh, that were modified in some significant way, uh, and the number that were denied or withdrawn. And the withdrawals would be because the court had some concerns. And the uh, Department of Justice often in those contexts, instead of moving forward and getting a, uh, a denial, will withdraw the uh, application. The last three years uh, of statistics, uh, if I can remember them, and there are no statistics yet for 2019, but for calendar years 16, 17, and 18, I think the percentage of applications that have either been modified, denied in part or full, or withdrawn, the three years it's 22%, 28%, and 25%. So it's an average of about 25% of the applications actually get some serious change, either a denial uh, or a modification. Most of the, these are modifications, not denials. But this, year, the, this past year, 2018, I believe there were 30 applications that were denied in full. Out of 1,318, I think, applications in 2018. Just for perspective, if you go to the domestic criminal law enforcement context uh, and Title III and the applications that are made to federal judges uh, for wiretaps, mainly in uh, drug cases, but uh, in other cases as well. There have been years that there have been no denials for several thousand cases that were brought during that year. The reason, it's a pretty careful system uh, the executive branch, really responsible for there being no denials, uh, is uh, pretty careful and does a good job. Now, some of those might be modified uh, by questions or, or concerns that the judge uh, raises. In the FISA area, I, I think there's even more care uh, given to those uh, uh, applications. They start in the field. They go through a lot of examination in the FBI field office. Uh, then they come to headquarters and are uh, reviewed. Uh, they then go to the Department of Justice, which is the litigating arm that brings them to the court uh, and are subject to further review there. And then they're reviewed by the court. So it's a pretty careful, intense process. And I don't think it's surprising that there wouldn't be that many denials. But there are enough that I think it's unfair to say that the court is a rubber stamp. Let me just make an observation, though, on the workload since I'm thinking of statistics. I said 1,300 applications last year. The year before, there were 1,612, I think, but about 1,600. And the year before that, there were 1,750. That breaks down, if my math is right, that last year, it was about 25 applications per week for the court to deal with. The year before, about 31 applications per week. And the year before that, 37. When I was on the court, and I left the court in 2013, so it's been a while since I've been on the court, but when I was on the court, we would have over 2,000 applications a year, and it would be between 40 and 50 uh, every week. So the workload of the court, i.e. the applications brought to the court, has really gone down. I don't have an explanation, but I think it's something to notice. Do you think it's because the world is getting safer? I, I hope that that's part of it, uh, but I think it's probably more complicated and, and is a combination of factors. All right. So in the last three years, the 
political anxieties of the, about the court have flipped almost entirely. Whole bunches of people on the political left and the center left have discovered that you know counterintelligence is really important, and 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 they've always really believed in those legal institutions that enable robust counterintelligence. And a whole lot of people on the right have discovered that the FISA court is a rubber stamp that doesn't protect citizens against a uh, rapacious FBI that's out to get involved in the political system and you know, retaliate against people because of the exercise of their constitutional rights. I, I guess I'm, I have been surprised at you know, having spent 20 years kind of writing about these issues and thinking that the sort of landscape of political support for and opposition to things like FISA and authorities like the ones that it contains was fairly stable at the degree to which it sort of suddenly upended. And I'm just curious for your thoughts as somebody who kind of sat on that, that court, what has the last few years of kind of FISA in the news, how has it hit you? It's politics. That's how it hits me, uh, basically. I mean, uh, it depends whose ox is getting gored, uh, what, your, what, your, what the view of some people is. Uh, I, I do think that uh, the court has been, thus far, fairly immune to that. The FBI and the Department of Justice is not immune today uh, to those criticisms. I, I don't think the uh, criticisms or concerns from the left have gone away. Uh, I think uh, you'll see them as parts of the statute uh, need to be renewed because uh, most parts of the statute need to be renewed. They all have sunset provisions in them. Uh, and there are a couple of parts that are being, that are up for renewal in December. Uh, some are not controversial. Uh, one is a little more controversial. But uh, I think you'll hear from uh, in the legislative arena uh, some concerns there. A recent hearing uh, that occurred uh, was interesting because it, it does put particularly some on the right, in a little bit of an awkward position uh, because they want the provisions of the statute renewed and continued, but yet they have a lot of criticisms uh, to lodge uh, against the court to some degree, uh, but more against the Department of Justice and the FBI in its relationships with and uh, uh, litigation before the court. Now, one of the big things that, uh, that I didn't mention a moment ago that is important to consider and is a legitimate concern. Unlike almost any other kind of matter in federal court, these applications usually, not always, but usually are not in the adversarial system. The government is the only party appearing before the court. Uh, there normally is no one on the other side. That makes sense if you think about it. You can't identify to anyone who the target of the surveillance is going to be, it needs to be secret surveillance. Otherwise, it's of no use whatsoever. So you do have to have uh, a system uh, that is not adversarial. There have been some changes made to the statute uh, that I think have improved the statute in some ways. A lot of them have to do with transparency. Uh, those are positive changes. 
Uh, one of them has to do with uh, the adversarial system and having uh, amici, uh, amicus curiae representation on some issues, uh, issues that involve uh, uh, novel uh, or very important uh, legal or nowadays often technological issues, and the court can get assistance from the uh, amici uh, on those issues. I, I want to push back a little bit on the idea that there isn't a sort of substantial political shift. And, you know, I agree with you that the sort of left's anxieties are still there and they will resurface whenever there's a renewal. But the center of gravity of the courts and the, the support for FISA has always been the center and the right. And now we've taken a chisel and lopped off the right. And every day on Fox News, there is an attack on the FBI's use of FISA. And I don't believe for a second that if you criticize the FBI for its use of FISA every day for a very long period of time, and the judges of the court's attitude is, yeah, this application you know, complied with the law, that eventually the right will adopt the exact same attitude toward the judges and the court as an institution that the left has, which is this is an instrumentality of power that we object to. And so my question is, aren't we seeing in, the po in contemporary political polarization a running away from on both left and right, the left was never there, but now the right is really peeling off hard, the core support for institutions like the FISA? I fear that we are. Uh, I don't disagree with that as uh, a comment on what may be happening. Not limited to FISA and the FISC. Uh, for instance, there's a, a criticism from some quarters with respect to federal judges generally. Uh, and uh, that uh, can have an impact. I think that that can have an impact in many areas, including uh, an impact on judicial independence. Uh, and uh, I fear for the permanent effects of those, uh, uh, not individual criticisms of cases. Judges should be subject to that. First Amendment uh, protects uh, uh, criticism of judges just like it does anyone else. Uh, but I mean, institutional criticism, uh, and uh, uh, that's a, a problem with respect to the FISC. Uh, I think the biggest threat to that may be what comes from the IG and the Connecticut U.S. Attorney uh, and their investigations with respect to the Carter Page uh, applications. All right, so let's talk about that. Before we do, just want to get this on the record. Were you still on the court when any of the activity in question happened? No. Did you have any involvement in any of the activity that we're about to discuss? No. Do you know anything of, of is any of the stuff that you're about to say or that we're about to talk about based on non-public information that comes from your service on the court? No. All right. Well, except maybe one's experience with how the court operates. Okay. So... In other words, what we're about to do is talk on the basis of general experiential intimacy with the FISA process and to make inferences and speculation uh, based on that about events as publicly reported. Is that fair? That is fair. Okay. So the criticism of the FBI in the context of the Carter Page FISA is, uh, first of all, 
that this was opposition research from given to them, sort of spoon-fed to them by Chris Steele, and that this pervasively affected the FISA application. So my first question is, if that were true, how big a problem would that be? As in, how common is it for the FBI to show up with a FISA application that is pretty pervasively provided the information from which comes from a single source? That happens. Uh, I, I don't think every application, uh, or m even most applications, uh, fit in that category. Uh, so the single source is an issue for the judges of the FISC. Uh, when they see a single source, they're going to explore that with the uh, agents that are bringing the case. Uh, they're going to want to know if there's anything else, uh, if there's something more from that source. Uh, they're going to have some questions about the source. Uh, so all of that uh, uh, is exacerbated if it's a single source. Right, but, but there's no, I mean, there's no kind of rule that a single trusted source, and I'm, I, by the way, I'm not saying that the Carter Page FISA was in fact based on a single source, but that's the allegation. If it was, there were circumstances in which a single trusted source could generate probable cause for a FISA warrant, right? Sure, there are, there are sources uh, uh, that uh, are paid sources. Uh, that generate information for FISA warrants, just like there are paid uh, confidential sources on which uh, criminal cases rest. Uh, so it's not rare that that would happen. It's not common, but it's not rare. What about sources with a political interest? I mean, the, 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 the suggestion is, I, I've always sort of scratched my head at this because, you know, the FBI takes information from mobsters, terrorists, and, and, and you know, all kinds of criminals. There's, there's something seemingly so disreputable about taking information from somebody who was hired by, indirectly by the Clinton campaign. What is the obligation of the FBI in a situation where it's taking information that's kind of indirectly generated by a political campaign or its agents? How much effort do they have to make to bring that to the attention of the court? And what, what would be an appropriate manner in which to bring it to the attention of the court? I think they would agree uh, that they have an obligation to bring that to the attention of the court. I would step back and say, as far as I know, with respect to the Carter Page applications, and there were four that were approved by the court, there was a footnote uh, that uh, uh, did at least allude to that. Uh, I'm not saying that it was full and forthcoming, but it certainly uh, gave some information as to this uh, source. And that's something that I think that the, the, court, the judges on the court, if I were on the court, I would certainly believe this, uh, but also the FBI and the Department of Justice believe is the responsibility of the FBI and the Department of Justice to reveal to the court any concerns that might exist with respect to the source. I also will step back and say, I'm not sure, well, I'm not convinced that this was a single source application. Oh, to be clear, I'm not <laughs> suggesting that at all. I'm saying the allegation, and Devin Nunes, the then chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, said it in public, right, that this, this application pervasively depended or was 
almost exclusively dependent on the, the dirty dossier, right? And so I'm saying, assuming that's true, how big a problem is that necessarily? And it's a little bit of a problem, but that's a big assumption. Right. We'll see. Uh, but, uh, but I'm not uh, of the view that uh, uh, it likely was a single source, but we'll see. Okay, so let's talk about that footnote. If you were still the presiding judge of the FISA court, or the FISC, and the, somebody came, the government came to you with that application, you approve that application, and then it turns out that the reality that we now know to be the case, which is that Chris Steele is hired by Fusion GPS, which is hired by Perkins Coie, which is working for the Clinton campaign, would you feel that that was an inadequate disclosure of the possible political bias or the actual political bias of the source? Or would you say, hey, it's there, it was kind of my job to, to read it, it's quite, quite open, and it, by the way, to the extent it doesn't name people, that's because we're trying not to name U.S. persons in, in applications. Hindsight is twenty twenty, uh, But I would like to think that if I were the judge and it were a single source or a fundamental part of the sourcing, that I might inquire. Having seen what was in the footnote, I might inquire further uh, to get the best information I could with respect to that source so that I could factor in whether I thought there was some bias in the source uh, or some reasons not to put full confidence in the source. Again, if it was one of four or five source items for the application, it would have been perhaps a little less important. And I might have seen that and said, okay, so I'll put a question mark next to this item but you've got these four other things, and that convinces me that the fairly low standard for probable cause uh, is met in this instance. And I'm only approving the application for a limited period of time, because that's what happens with all applications. So whether it's 90 days or 120 days or 180 days, it's only for a limited period of time, and it has to come back for renewal. And it did on three further occasions. All four of the judges who looked at it approve the applications. I want to come back to the judges, the renewals and the judges, but I want to focus for a minute on what you just said about probable cause being a relatively low standard. For those who are not lawyers in the room, probable cause is sort of a, it's not the lowest standard in federal law, but it's, but it's pretty close. How often did it happen when you were on the court that you see an application and you say, well, there's probable cause here, which means sort of like there's likely a good reason to do this surveillance. But then the premise of the surveillance actually turns out to be wrong. As in, you know, there's probable cause that this guy's an agent of a foreign power, so you authorize the surveillance. And then it turns out that he's not an agent of a foreign power. And so that the probable cause standard was met, but the premise of the surveillance is actually incorrect. It happens on occasion. I can speak from my personal experience and say that there were occasions where I thought the probable cause determination was a close call. Uh, and I even in a couple of occasions said, okay, government, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna authorize this for just 60 days and you're gonna have to come back to me, not to another judge for a renewal. And you're gonna have to show me what 
you've discovered through the electronic surveillance uh, in that 60 days. Sometimes they would come back and I would say, okay, I'll renew it based on that further information. Sometimes they came back, there was no information uh, that uh, uh, really supported uh, the application uh, any further and I would say, no, we're not gonna renew it any further. So it happens. Uh, that, that's part of the process that uh, sometimes the probable cause determination, while made legally, turns out that the person either is not doing what the government is concerned about or is not doing it on those methods of communication. Because on occasion, and this happened quite frequently, I would approve an application that was made for three phone numbers and an email address, but I'd only approve it for two phone numbers because I didn't think the probable cause finding was made as to the third phone number or the email. All right, so how many times has it happened in your experience or to your knowledge that the application is approved the first time, it is then renewed one, two, or three times, and then the premise of the original application turns out to be inaccurate. I would say that would be exceedingly rare. I'm, I'm not aware of any instance, but that would be exceedingly rare. So is it fair to say, which is, has been my assumption for a while, that the fact of the renewals is itself probative to some degree of uh, the underlying integrity of the original order? I, I think it is because you there's further information that is developed because you have electronic surveillance on that target. And that further information will either be supportive of the application or undermine the application and gives the judge and the executive branch in the first instance in deciding whether to continue uh, to seek the uh, uh, approval of the application. But it gives the judge the uh, ability to decide whether that uh, application, uh, that surveillance should continue. Okay, Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Senate uh, uh, Judiciary Committee, recently sent a letter to the Justice Department asking for the declassification of a whole bunch of documents, including a letter that, uh, or any letter, but I, I take it that he probably has one in mind, that uh, informs the court of an error or an omission in some of these applications or renewals. These meaning the Carter Page application? That was the implication of the letter. And so my question is, I, I believe it's, I think it's rule 13 of the, of, of the FISC requires the Justice Department to inform the court when there's a material misstatement of fact or a material omission in in, the in, in some application. And so my question is, how common is it for the Justice Department to having submitted an application, find out, hey, we made a material misstatement of fact on some point, or we left out something that turns out to be significant and come back to the court and, and, and amend the record? That happens, but, I, but it's really something else that happens more often. Uh, first, uh, I'll say that uh, back in the 19th, late 1990s into uh, early 2000, there was a, an incident, if you will, uh, with the consistency uh, in terms of the uh, validity 
of certain representations being made out of some parts of the FBI, and the court worked uh, on that, uh, and uh, uh, the FBI was very responsive. Uh, I was really on the tail end of that, but to the extent that I dealt with it, uh, dealing with Bob Mueller on those issues was a joy. Uh, he was very conscientious and cooperative about uh, uh, those kinds of issues that had arisen. There were compliance issues while I was there of a bigger nature uh, that were more in the technological arena and more focused on NSA uh, than on the FBI, but some also with the FBI over the course of time. The Department of Justice informs the court uh, on a monthly basis of compliance issues. A lot of them are just little ticky-tack things, uh, some uh, uh, little thing that needs to be corrected, nothing of any concern. But every once in a while, there's something of great concern. And sometimes it's on, on the programmatic uh, collections rather than an individualized uh, collection. Uh, and I think of one that uh, occurred uh, during my watch, uh, and I issued over 200 pages of opinions. Uh, this was dealing like a year this. of litigation. It was a year of litigation. It was a year of more than litigation. It was a year of litigation, but it was also a year of having the director of the NSA, the deputy director of the NSA, and other senior people uh, in uh, the intelligence community and the Department of Justice coming into the court and meeting with me uh, on almost a monthly basis to review these issues. Some of it was they had to explain some of them to me in terms of the technology, to me and the lawyers working with me, uh, but also uh, to try to work out solutions. Uh, and uh, it was a year's worth of uh, litigation, a year's worth of hearings uh, as part of that litigation. Uh, that's a big compliance issue, and there have been some other big ones, but there are little ones as well. Uh, sometimes they are focused on uh, individual cases with the facts not having been accurate, either because a mistake was made by the government or because by continuing to push, they found out that a source wasn't reliable uh, or had in fact been mistaken in what they said. So there are all sorts of things that can happen that would be compliance related issues. All right, so I want, here I want you to sort of put on your politically savvy guy hat and- uh, Judges don't have any political savvy. Uh, well, all right, how about just savvy? Right? And, and, you know, and you know the Bureau, you've worked with the Bureau in a lot of, so in 2016, the fall of 2016, when this application goes forward, the Justice Department and the FBI is super, super aware of the political context in which they are asking for this, this surveillance. And when these applications are renewed, which is after the 2016 election, it is really unambiguous what the political context is. So in your experience with the Bureau and the Justice Department, how much internal attention do you think this, this application was likely to receive relative to the norm? I would say it should have received uh, a pretty hefty amount of uh, internal attention. Um, now whether it did or not, I can't. So of course. So we have this pattern where like any, pardon me, any idiot would know to pay a lot of attention to this application in which the application is advanced and is granted in which there are serial renewals and in which notwithstanding the 
intense political blowback that has happened, uh, the court has said nothing and has given no indication that it regards there being any problem with this uh, surveillance activity. So my question is, should I read anything into that? As, as the courts, is it the court saying, this is between the Justice Department and the Congress and Fox News and the New York Times? Or is it the court saying, actually, we don't have a problem with what the Justice Department did here? Or is it the court, is, it, is the court doing something else? I can't answer that question because I'm not the court. I'm just a judge who used to be on the court. It may be that the court doesn't have sufficient factual information to really do anything at this time. Or it may be that the court thinks that the downside of saying something and taking some involvement in a highly partisan political issue is just too great uh, and that they just need to stay silent. I'm not saying that that's what I necessarily would do on the court, but I understand that there are some reasons that could, without indicating that the court has taken a position, that might be that the court either feels it doesn't have sufficient factual information to reach any conclusions, or uh, that it just thinks the political touchiness of this is too great. Now, if the IG issues a report, and the report is factually based and concludes that the court was misled, uh, that uh, uh, there were failings, uh, then I think that the, uh, the court is going to have to uh, uh, look at it and see uh, what, if anything, uh, it needs to do to improve the system for the future. I'm not sure that Senator Graham's idea of the Chief Justice should hold whoever is responsible for this in contempt is really a viable idea. I would have some little bit of jurisdictional issues <laughs> as a starting matter. Um, what are you expecting from the IG? I mean, so for those of you who are not privy to the Washington rumor mill, everybody sort of expects that the IG is having, have, will have critical things to say. And yet the, a lot of the facts that we've just described sort of suggest that if there's, like, if there's a big problem, there's certain indicia that, of regularity and kind of the way the thing was conducted. And so I kind of scratch my head and say, okay, I, people, everybody seems to think Michael Horowitz is gonna find something unpleasant here, but how is it that if Michael Horowitz is gonna find something so unpleasant, it wasn't discovered at any step along the way? And so I'm just wondering what you expect. I think that's an excellent question. I expect a very thorough report, uh, a very fair report uh, from Michael Horowitz. He's a good inspector general. Uh, he's careful. Uh, now, what that means, I don't know. Uh, the, the rumor mill, as Ben says, uh, in Washington, mainly coming from the right side. Uh, it's the right side rumor mill more than anything else. Those are the ones who are talking about it and saying that there's going to be something. You could uh, uh, look at the hearing that took place last week on FISA renewal matters, which turned into a hearing in part on this, uh, and see uh, Chairman Nadler saying, I haven't seen anything that would indicate uh, there was any problem. So I'm not sure what uh, uh, 
uh, to really expect. But I expect a pretty lengthy, thorough report. At the very last minute, some witnesses were made available, including Steele, uh, to uh, Michael Horowitz. I don't know if that you know, changed the direction of anything. But I don't have a prediction for whether he's going to find fault and mistakes or worse, and at what levels. Because remember that the sign-offs on these applications in the Department of Justice and the FBI were at pretty high levels. I mean, you can look and you can say that uh, Jim Comey, McCabe, Rod Rosenstein, uh, they all signed off, Sally Yates, they all signed off on uh, these applications. Now, how close scrutiny they gave to them, I don't know. All right, we have time for a couple questions. Hi, and thanks for explaining all this because it's kind of hard to follow if you're not, you know, an attorney. But you, you know, you just talked about this Inspector General report that they're doing that the Attorney General has commissioned him to do. How do you feel about that, though? How do you feel about the Attorney General coming in and saying we're going to look at the FBI, we're going to look at the FISA court, we're going to, you know, does that is that a problem? Is that does that cast some sort of doubt over our system of justice. The Inspector General's report is not really commissioned by the Attorney General. There are two investigations going on of this general subject. One is the Inspector General's report, or investigation leading to a report. And the other, which was commissioned by Attorney General Barr, is an uh, investigation being conducted uh, by the sitting U.S. Attorney in Connecticut. He's someone who's been used for these kinds of things before. So I don't think that we really can uh, uh, be critical of the current attorney general or really any attorney general for the inspector general looking at this subject. That's really what the inspector general is there for, so I don't have any problem with the inspector general examining it. Do you worry, though, that the, uh, the kind of serial retroactive after-action reports in high-profile political cases has a sort of chill on investigators? Yes, uh, so I think uh, we need to be careful about that. Just as I would say from a prior experience that I had in an independent counsel office, uh, sometimes independent counsels don't have a broad enough perspective and the focus is so much on one thing that it's more likely they're going to find something. I think that tends to be true sometimes with these big items that inspector generals look at. They're not going to give a clean bill of health to every aspect of it. They're going to find something. And I do think those after-action reports can be taken to an extreme. Sir. Hi. Um, I spent six years as an Air Force cyber intelligence analyst, uh, and I'm now a practicing attorney, given that our American jurisprudence system is inherently suspicious of ex parte proceedings, would you be opposed to creating a special office that would always uh, oppose the government, still in secret? Do you think that would ameliorate some of the concerns that we've been talking about and bolster the court's credibility? I actually have been opposed to that. Uh, after I left the court, post-Snowden, 
there were some legislative changes and a lot of controversy, uh, and the Chief Justice asked me to sort of be the point person because I was no longer sitting on the court, but I was in another position uh, as the Director of the Administrative Office of U.S. Courts. And I did take a position uh, on uh, for the judiciary uh, on the issue of an amicus curiae. My position basically was, all right, amici are good to have a cadre uh, who's available for limited types of cases on request of the court, and that's what went into effect through the legislation. But I was opposed to a general office that would be interjected into every application. The reason is more pragmatic than anything else. There's a structural reason, even a constitutional reason, uh, to oppose that, but the real reason is pragmatic. 90%, more than 90% of these applications are fairly routine and or totally fact-based. You can't have someone involved in every one of those without slowing the system down dramatically and leading to a delay in approval of these applications. And with the fact-based ones, this office that you just uh, identified really couldn't do an investigation. You can't go out and talk to neighbors, talk to relatives, because you're going to tell the target that they're going to be under surveillance. So there's no real way to explore those facts through an amicus or a permanent office like that. And that's most of the applications. Sir? Fundamentally, our courts are supposed to be separate and equal and autonomous from the legislative and from the executive branches. Is there something inherently flawed in this system of judicial compensation by the legislation or the legislature? I would say no. I, I don't think that really has anything to do with the FISC specifically, but the judiciary generally, uh, Article Three branch. Uh, I think the protections in the, in the uh, Constitution uh, for judicial independence include, there are not many of them, but they include uh, salary protection for federal judges. The judiciary is subject to a budget process with the legislature, just like all other parts of government. You couldn't have the judiciary so freestanding that it would just say, all right, we want $10 billion and no one can ask any questions. So it goes through Congress. Fortunately, right now, and it has been true generally, Congress has enough respect for the judiciary, for that independent branch, that we are treated pretty darn well in terms of the budget. And individual judges, of course, with the salary protection in the Constitution, their salary can't be reduced. So I, I do think there are lots of issues with respect to the judiciary and whether it really is an equal branch in all respects because it really has less clout historically than the political branches. But I don't think having to go through the legislative process for the budget is a big problem. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, please join me in thanking Judge Bates. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. 
Thanks this week to John Bates for coming on the show, and to the Texas Tribune for hosting and providing this audio. If you have a second, please share the Lawfare podcast on social media and give us a five-star rating and review wherever you found us. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.